Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to Kenneth, Senior Vice President of the Enterprise Technology Office at FIS. And we discuss the revolution of embedded finance, how to upscale a tech team, and why it's best to vary your career with other disciplines. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So it's my full-time thing. We've been doing it for five years and 530-something episodes. So that's how I went from software developer to podcast person. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I also had a somewhat meandering path where I am today. So I started out, interestingly enough, in marketing and finance back in the 90s, working for uh, a fintech based out of Montreal. So I'm Canadian. doesn't always come across, but I, I live in Montreal, but I work globally. So we were, we were a small startup in the brokerage space. We were essentially making like E-Trade-like websites for the Canadian banks. I graduated in, uh, out of school. I was, was my second job, and I was um, essentially doing marketing for this fintech. And we were bought by a large American company, SunGuard, uh, where I spent 15 years. And in 2016, I joined FIS when we were bought. SunGuard was bought by FIS. But I drifted from marketing over to product management, and then product management into engineering, which is where I am today. So. Today, I run what is what we call our Enterprise Technology Office, or ETO. And essentially, my group looks after all of the common plumbing of FIS. So if you think about all the services that you know a, a multi-product portfolio would need so that we don't duplicate them again and again and again, that's, that's what my group provides. So anything from identity management to API gateways, event streaming platforms, Payments, right? Well, the payments group would use my capabilities. So I don't focus on a particular line of business, so a particular financial domain. I deliver services to the lines of business that then service the different financial domains. I'm kind of the plumbing underneath the company. Yeah, that's what I meant because like, if you have a company that has a bunch of apps, they'll typically start to extract the things. So one of the first things often to get extracted because it makes the most sense is the payment system. Right, because handling payments across multiple applications can be centralized pretty easily. So it's interesting that you say that because that's what FIS does. Okay. Right? So FIS is a payments provider to websites, right? So our business is really the financial plumbing that runs the financial world. Oh, very cool. So you're like, use us <laughs> instead of building it yourself? Well, we do, but we provide those services to the market. So people always ask me, like, what do I do? And I always say, well, I'm in fintech. And they assume that I work for like a startup. But no, we're one of the largest fintech providers in the world. 95% of the world's banks use our technology. 50%, we move 50% of the, of the uh, world's wealth or we manage it on our systems. We handle about $13 trillion annually. So we're, we're like the rails that underpin the financial system. Somewhere along the way, you've touched one of our systems. I think virtually everybody in the world at some point has touched one of our systems. So that includes everything from banking to brokerage to insurance to treasury systems to merchant services, uh, payments. Um, and so we provide those services to the market. So 
someone building a website or building a, a, an app would use our payment APIs to process their payments. Well, I'll give you after the show, I'll give you my account numbers and maybe some... I have them right some here. Some fractions can be added. <laughs> you have some pretty sketchy transactions. We will have to talk about that after the show. Right, right. Do you identify suspicious transactions? Is that something you guys do? We do. Yeah, we've got systems that look like fraud detection systems, um, you know, AI-driven systems that look at patterns and identify suspicious activity. So when you go to your bank, you know, when your bank sends you an alert saying, you know, somebody tried to use your credit card or this transaction looks pretty suspicious, that comes from some of our fraud systems. Oh, there's actually a ton of fraud now that will use that as their end, right? I get emails all the time from Facebook that's like, your marketing campaign has stopped. And I look at the domain, I'm like, this isn't from Facebook. It looks super legit. Sometimes they'll even use like third party services um, so that it's coming through like some, you know, software that you would pay for to send email. So it looks more legitimate. Yeah. I mean, threat actors are getting far more sophisticated, especially as consumers start using more and more services, right? Everybody has apps on their phone. Everybody uses services. So, you know, we get messages bombarded you know, we're bombarded with them all day from various notifications, apps, and, you know, emails, IMs. So the, the channels through which a, a threat actor can get to you today is, has, has grown exponentially. And they're, they're getting quite sophisticated. You know, phishing attacks, spear phishing attacks, you have to be on your toes. How do you determine fraud in like several milliseconds? Like the detection happens relatively fast. Like... You know, when I when I process a transaction that does get denied, I mean that happens almost as the same speed as a transaction that goes through successfully, right? How do you, in such a small amount of time, figure out that it's fraud or not? Well, you've got some very powerful systems, big data platforms that are looking at data, that are looking at patterns, you know, algorithms that are built to run very fast against large volumes of data. I mean, just like you go to Google and search and get back results instantaneously across billions of websites, we can process against billions of transactions and look at known patterns or even personalized patterns for you, right? We know your activity. We know what type of transactions you make. If suddenly you start spending high volume, you start doing some, some odd transactions in at jewelry stores, right? That's going to, I don't know. I don't know what you're into. I right? do. I mean, I'm into grills. And you do I... like a lot of bling, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it'll it'll flag it, and you know as you try to process that transaction, it's going to flag it in near real time or real time. That's crazy. What's like the hot topic right now in your space? I would I would say it's what the industry is calling embedded finance. What's that? So if you think about banking traditionally, you know if you needed services, any type of financial services, you would go to a financial institution, right? You would go to a bank, and you'd go down the channel that that bank or, you know, banks in general built for you, right? You may have something in the past, you had to go to the branch and you had to sign papers. Uh, you know, if you wanted to take out a loan, for example, if you wanted to open a credit, uh, open a credit card, if you wanted to pay for things sometimes, especially in commercial, you sometimes had to go and go to the bank and, and do it uh, if it was a large type of transaction. And so financial services was always separated from, the rest of the economy, right? It had its own its own channels to, to get their services. And what you're seeing now is financial services embedded in everyday life, right? All the services that you consume as a consumer have financial services kind of baked in. 
So think about using ride sharing or ordering from a meal delivery service. You know, if you if you book a cab on one of these ride sharing apps, you know, you pay for it right then and there built into that to that app, right? What what you said at the beginning, right? You know, using payment APIs to be able to process this stuff. So financial services is being are being embedded in day-to-day apps. And so to do that, it requires us to take a lot of these sort of monolithic banking systems that we've we've sold in the past and really decompose them into more granular services that can be consumed by, you know, fintechs building apps, um, you know, retailers building e-commerce storefronts, um, you know, just even companies doing B2B payments, right, might, might embed some kind of financial services in their app. Buy now, pay later is something. If you think about it, if you've seen that, you know, you, you, you go to a retailer and you, you buy a couch or you buy a, you know, something, you know, something. Like a firm. That's a big one. A firm. Yeah, exactly. Right. So what you're doing is essentially right at checkout, they're giving you a loan, right? And that's, that's all, that's embedded finance right there. I did it. Right in the experience. Exactly. Why don't I know the brand FIS as a consumer? Like I know Stripe and you probably do a lot more than them and have a lot more services, but like I know Stripe as a brand. Why don't I know FIS? I think because for a lot of our history and we've been around for over 50 years, we've been underneath the brands that you know. So our customers are the big banks and brokerage firms and insurance companies, and we're their service partner. We're the, the, the systems that power their business. Um, and so I think for a lot of our history, we were sort of behind the scenes. You know, companies like Stripe and Square, they came out of Silicon Valley, they come out with their brand, you know, they're, they're more front and center to, to the consumer. But what you, you might be familiar with WorldPay. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So WorldPay is one of our brands. So our payment, our merchant services brand is WorldPay. So you'll, you may get on a, a terminal that you pay with your, 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 your credit card with at a, at a store or, or a restaurant. Well, you know, you know, Regis, like the co-working space. Yeah. yeah. Co- we've got a couple of Regis offices around the U.S. And when yeah. I pay them, they use WorldPay. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, one of the world's largest brands. I think we process about one third of all payments around the world. That's so cool. How many brands do they own that's like WorldPay? I think from a consumer perspective, it's probably one of our top brands that you might know of. Um, if like you're in, in total, the, like what's the total portfolio number of things you guys have? I have to pull someone in for marketing, but I mean, just knowing I, I've been here 23 years, just oh wow rough count. I mean, there's probably two, three dozen brands that, that, that we've acquired over the years. Um, if you're in the financial services space, um, you know, often, oftentimes I'll meet with people who work for banks or other financial institutions and, you know, we'll have acquired a company that was big in, in a particular niche of financial services and they'll know that brand, right? That because that, that brand was like the, the the best of breed solution that was in the market for many years. And it, in many cases, they still know the system as that brand. But from a consumer perspective, I think the brand you probably know the best is WorldPay. Oh, that's very cool. See, I'm glad I asked, right? Because I saw the size of you guys and I was like, typically when I run into you know, after doing all of these shows, when I, when I run into a company that's like massive, but I haven't personally heard of them, they usually own like a portfolio of brands and I'll know one of the brands that they own. But I want to, we kind of, you kind of glossed over it. You've been there 23 years. 
23 years. Yeah. I started in the late nineties and, um, started with that, that company in the brokerage space, got acquired by SunGuard, was with them for about 15 years. And then SunGuard now, um, FIS now for, uh, for six years. Was SunGuard one that had a portfolio of products too, or were they just a single product? So Sun, SunGuard was in the capital markets space. So if you think about the financial industry, think Wall Street and Main Street, right? Wall Street is the, the sort of the, the, the capital markets business, right? It's the, it's brokerage, it's, it's trading and pension funds, hedge funds, you know, sort of the, the, the big money. And then Main Street is the, the retail banking, right? It's, it's, it's you and me, it's the mom and pop stores. It's so in a way we used to joke when FIS bought SunGuard, it was, it was Wall, uh, Main Street buying Wall Street, very different cultures. If you've ever been to Wall Street or you've been to like Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh yeah. So FIS today, I, I mean, if you, if you look at our business, it's really three main segments, right? We've got the banking business, right? Core banking systems, you know, retail banking, you know, uh, loan origination and so on. You've got um, the capital markets business, which is, you know, as I said, brokerage, trading, insurance. Um, and then you've got the, the merchant solutions business, which is think of it primarily as the world pay business, right? It's, it's merchant services. And then you guys do for like some local banks, you'll do like interfaces, like you'll be the portal for a local bank. Do you have any tools like that? Absolutely. Yeah. We have a, a system called digital one and it's essentially the online banking front end. Got it. Right. But it's branded. Right. So again, you don't see us. It doesn't say FIS on it. You, you'll see uh, one of our customer brand, like a bank brand, but the website is ours. Right. And in some cases the, the bank might build their own website, but use our APIs. Yeah. Right. So, you know, they, our system is on the back end, but they've customized their own front end. In some cases we've customized the front end for them. So there's different flavors. It, it ranges from, from, you know, the large, large banks, you know, the, the, the JP Morgans of the world down to, you know, regional banks and then community banks. So we, we service all three tiers. So that's where I have heard of you guys. And I think I might've worked with one of your systems. I did a um, project about seven years ago on software for audit confirmations. I don't know if you're familiar with what that is. It's this process like between the CPA, they get, they're doing an audit. So they have to do confirmations of bank account balances and there's all this paperwork and this legal process. And this team built this software that like makes that easier for the local bank because bigger banks have whole departments, but local banks, it's like the manager going and doing these constantly. Um, And this system helped automate it and they needed it to be integrated into these uh, uh, portal providers, uh, which would be like something you guys do. Because I knew I had heard FIS somewhere in my life, but that's probably where it was. Yeah. So that's a great example of where you might use one of our APIs. One of the platforms I manage is called Code Connect. It's basically our, our API gateway. Right? So we have a developer portal where you could come and browse through the APIs and you as a developer building an audit software would need a, a quick way to access bank account balances. And so you'd use one of our REST APIs to pull that data in. And there's a, there's a developer experience that we provide that allows you to get your access key and make those calls and you know, we'll meter it and bill it based on the contract that you sign. So that's, that's an, that's a great example of embedded finance, right? Right there, right? It's, it's a, it's a software built for something completely different, but leveraging granular decomposed services from a, from a core banking system to add value added functionality to a, to another app. So why 23 years and why not move on to something else? You know, people ask me that all the time, you know, it's, um, you know, a lot of my friends are always very surprised that 
I've stayed in one place, right? Most people, you know, rotate jobs every two, three years, maybe five years. You know, I, I, my career has, it's, I've had very interesting challenges throughout my, throughout my career. And I haven't really done the same job for 23 years, right? In, in, in some ways, the company changed around me and I got to do different things. Um, and so, you know, like, like I said, I started in marketing, I moved to product management, I moved to uh, engineering. Over time, I kind of rose through the ranks and I inherited bigger engineering groups. And the vantage point that I have in the company, because I'm sort of these enterprise services, right? The central services that, that touch all areas of our business, I get to see and work with a lot of different products across different, you know, different financial domains and different clients in different countries all around the world. So it's in some ways I consider myself very lucky, but you know, I'm not just working for one product in one city, in one market niche, right? I get to deal with the whole spectrum of financial services. And so it's, for me, it's just been a very interesting ride. I, I, I learn new things every day. The industry is constantly evolving. The pace of technology just keeps accelerating. I mean, I, I was talking to somebody the other day and, and it used to be that, you know, we sort of did a technology turnover every three to five years, right? You re replace some framework or replace some database or replace some, you know, key component in your application with a new framework or a platform or whatever. And the pace seems to be accelerating. I, it seems like we're revisiting the technology choices we're making every 18 months and it seems to be getting faster and faster. So it's an exciting industry. It's an exciting company. I think we've got, uh, you know, we've got a lot of assets that, that just have a lot of opportunities in, in the, you know, in the evolving financial world. So for me, it's just been a good ride. Yeah. Everything is speeding up. I talked with uh, Parker Harris, who's one of the co-founders of Salesforce. And he had mentioned on the show something that blew me away. Apparently more than one time a year, they like rewrite their underlying infrastructure. I thought that was incredible pace. More than one time a year. <laughs> That's much faster than, than I can imagine. But I know. I, you know, you always have to be thinking of technical debt. You know, if you want to stay competitive and you want to um, continue to stay relevant in the market, you have to focus on your technical debt. I think teams that focus too much on building new features and new features and new features, but never look at the underlying platform and never reassess the technology choices they've made and fix some of the debt they've created over, over time, you can only grow to a point and then you just hit a wall. And if you, if you have a model where you can constantly invest in the underpinning of your application, then you you create a sustainable product. And I think it's very important. Something that I try to do in all my platforms and have, have done throughout my career. When new styles, like one day you woke up and everybody's like, monoliths suck. <laughs> you know, like these new things happen in the industry and these trends happen. And because you've been at the same place for 23 years, you've seen a lot of these come and go. You're obviously working on a very important software that has to have extraordinarily high uptime and work correctly the first time. When you see these trends, or like how, how have these trends come across your radar and then actually make it into production? How would that process go? If you think of one trend that has made it into production, how did it go from the moment you heard about it and, and you never knew about it till it was in production? Well, you know, I think we, we tend to look at things in an isolated area first, 
sort of find something that fits whatever, let's say, let's say it's a new technology that's come out, right? a new, a new platform, a new framework, a new way of doing things like no SQL databases, right? Everybody was on relational databases and then these no SQL databases came out and you want to see what they can do. You start small, right? You start in one ancillary application that connects into your main application. You, you kind of get a feel for how it operates and then, you know, it kind of expands over time. You know, a couple of years ago, we shifted from, you know, focusing on Java to JavaScript, right? So we, we started moving our applications. A lot of what my team is doing from building Java to, you know, like Node.js type applications. And we started small. We started, you know, with, with some kind of ancillary component. We built an app looking at, you know, modern practices like containerization, right? We, we containerized it. We, we scaled it out. And then we, re- we got a feel for that technology and we realized that we could do more with that technology. So we started moving other pieces over to it. So you, yeah, you start small and you just kind of grow it as time goes on. That, 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 that concept of constantly refreshing your technology as new technology gets introduced, the ones that are successful make their way into other modules and other components. And the ones that don't, you ring fence it and then you replace it as part of the normal cycle. Yeah, that makes sense. No, thank you for sharing. I, whenever I find people that have a wealth of experience, like my job is not to be smart. My job is just to find smart people and ask them questions that are valuable for the audience. You know, one of the things that's very difficult today is upskilling your team, right? Because technology is changing so fast, it's you know the site, the, the pace of technological change is moving uh, much more rapidly. Moving teams, for example, that example I gave from Java to JavaScript, right? You've got large teams. They're used to one technology. They have to upskill very quickly. So that's a, that's a huge challenge that we have in my team and other teams within FIS and I'm, I'm certain across the industry. One thing that we've done fairly successful, not the only thing, but one thing that we've done is we, we've, we have a, what we call Innovate in 48. It's a hackathon, essentially. It's been around for 10 years. Actually, funny story, the, the, the CTO I was working with at the time, we originally called it a hackathon and he he got very uncomfortable with the word hack. He said it would, sounded kind of malicious and <laughs> we had to change the name. And so essentially it's a hackathon that, that, that we run every year. We do a regional round across the company. So it's, it's developers from different teams across the company. They form teams. Sometimes there's a theme, sometimes there's no theme, but you know, we let them take, you know, it's usually occurs within one week. Uh, they get 48 hours. That's the innovate in 48 to essentially pick a technology, play with it, get get some experience with it, and get to upskill themselves on something that they wouldn't normally work with in their day to day, you know, day to day job. And you know, sometimes we've you know built features for our products out of that program that have made their way to production. But I think more important is really getting the developers to learn something new. And that type of program, you know, when I talk to some of the developers and the participants, I realized that the skills they pick up, maybe not what they built is, you know, becomes relevant, but the skills they pick up help us upskill them. And as we, as we go through technology refreshes and we look at new things, they pick, they take those skills and they apply them to solving problems with them. And so I think that's, that program has been great for us. It's quite popular in the company and it's, I think that's helped us handle that technology upskilling challenge. So it's a double benefit. First, they might have an interesting innovation that you might actually apply. But second, the behaviors that they're exercising as they go through this benefit them and their work. Exactly. 
That's pretty cool. We talked with Eric from Arvig the other week. They're a telecom company. He's head of cybersecurity. He talked about you know threats, ransomware, how companies have to make tough decisions about whether they should pay to get their data back, all that type of stuff. Has that world ever come up in your world at all? Specifically ransomware. Like, Have you ever had to deal with ransomware specifically? FIS as a company probably has. Me personally, no. I have dealt with a number of cybersecurity threats. You know, you can imagine being the front door to banks. You know, we're we're quite the target. You're a huge target. <laughs> yeah. We are a huge target. I, one of the systems that I manage is our identity management system. So it's basically the login system to banks. And uh, you know, you enter your password, your OTP, and all that. Yeah, I mean, we're we're constantly being attacked every day. There's something that's going on. It's a credential stuffing attack, a phishing attack, you name it. So we we've got to stay on our toes. I remember one Christmas, I we try not to do changes at Christmas. We try to keep everything quiet at Christmas. But I remember one Christmas, I was just on the phone for the entire week because we were we were getting hit with a with a cyber attack. Got to get those Christmas presents, man. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's. Something we take very seriously at FIS. We have a whole cybersecurity team, a security operations center that monitors things minute by minute. You know, all the data that comes in from our systems get fed into this SOC system, we call it, or SIEM, S-I-E-M system. And yeah, they're, they're constantly, it's like a whole vigilance program to make sure that, uh, you know, bad actors aren't trying or aren't getting in. So my background, I told you, a software developer. My teams never got bigger than 30. And, you know, we did one financial software, but for the most part, we just sort of like built it in an infancy stage for a, like one specific chain of financial advisory firm. So I haven't had a ton of experience of how do you at scale with lots of employees and lots of team members, like 100 plus, uh, managing access to data, right? So you've got this identity verification system and there has to be some like protocols and, and, and ways of protecting that information, but also allowing the developers to do their job. How do you balance all of that? It's a good question. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think there is a constant struggle between, you know, giving developers access to systems and controlling access to systems. I mean, we, we have a, you know, a very careful separation between production systems and development systems, right? There's different rules. You know, there's firewalls and, you know, network segmentation that prevents you from moving data from one system to the other. Obviously, if you're dealing with production data, it's extremely sensitive. It's customer data. And in our case, it's financial data. It's a, you know, need to know basis only. Yeah. So we have careful controls that allow, um, you know, only certain individuals to access certain data certain portions of the database and so on. So it's, it's, we're contractually obligated in many ways to make sure that that data is not, is not accessed by, by too many people. In development, we tend to use tools that obfuscate data. So if the developers need access to production data, because, you know, they have to do their testing or they have to, you know, develop against real data so that they can, you know, make sure that, you know, the features they're building are working correctly. We, we have tools that obfuscate the data, right? So we take production data and we can change it in a way that erases re- people's real names and email addresses and things like that, but creates a database that looks like production. So that's something we employ in our development practices. Um, generally speaking, we do not let developers touch production. There's generally different teams that manage production data 
versus development. And when a developer has to be brought in, if there's an issue in production, there are steps and, and approvals that need to happen for them to get temporary access. Very cool. I didn't know if there was like a common framework or like a book for this is how you handle sensitive data at scale with permissioning or access allocation. I think it's highly tailored to your particular business and your contracts, right? Because you know we have customers who have very clear rules about what data can be accessed. If you're dealing with, for example, health information, mm-hmm. you know, you've got rules all over the world. Like different countries even have different rules about, you know, data privacy and data security. So you, you kind of have to tailor it to different jurisdictions, different types of applications, different types of data. So I don't know if there's one rule for any type of sensitive data. I think it's it really varies by industry and by by region. That makes sense. Dude, you've been really great. You've indulged all my curiosity. (laughs) Okay, I want to do uh, leadership advice. What's your best leadership advice that you've ever gotten? Well, it's, it's advice that I've gotten and that I still give to people. Try to vary your career. You know, people tend to want to take the linear, the, the fastest linear path to success, right? They want to rise through the corporate ladder, especially in engineering. I, I find the best engineers are people who've done other disciplines, right? Spend some time in product management, spend some time in marketing, spend some time talking to clients, right? Whether you're in technical sales or, you know, some kind of, of client services position, the, the insight that you will get and the and the value of being able to understand how all those other disciplines touch the client and touch your software will make you a better engineer or architect or whatever it is you're you're doing in that technical discipline. So I always tell that people people my you know my staff will come up to me and say you know how do I get to be the the next chief architect or how do I get to be the next you know development manager and, and I always tell them go do something else for a bit and come back to development it'll make you a better person and a better developer. I like that. Are you hiring currently? We are. We're always hiring. Uh, we're always looking for good talent. We've got new markets we're venturing into all the time. So it requires people who think differently, people who have different skill sets. So yeah. If some from our audience are interested, where would they go to learn more about that? FISglobal.com. We'll go to our careers section. Excellent. Dude, we made a podcast. How do you feel? I feel good. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.